The Cappuccino Podcast brought to you in association with Tactical Solutions. For all your tactical solutions, check them out at www.tactical.co.nz. It's that time again, so grab yourself a cup of joe and get ready for the Cappuccino with Constable Brian. All right, so my guest today, good friend of mine, Colin McDonald. Um, we'll talk about uh, a few things, but he's a psychotherapist. He has been for 20 years. Uh, he's a broadcaster. He's now officially a author as well. Uh, since 2016, he's written a weekly mental health column for the New Zealand Herald. He's the co-host of the award-winning radio show, The Nutters Club. He regularly appears on radio and TV, offering expert commentary on mental health, emotional well-being, and I think even I... And you have been on a panel where we were both asked who our hall pass was, uh, but that's a story for another day. Yeah, uh, He is the author of the new book, Shit Happens, uh, Lessons for Dealing with Life's Up and Downs, and he's also a long-suffering Auckland rugby supporter. He's also been a baggage handler and a truck driver up in the Yukon, if I've heard things right. So... Welcome to the Cappuccino Goal. Yeah, thank you. Alaska, it was. Alaska, sorry, yeah. my yeah, same, yeah, yeah. yeah, so yeah, so yeah, um, freezing. I've been up to the Yukon. I, dro- I, I drove through like. the Yukon, though. It's a stunning place. It is. It's amazing. Eh? Yeah, it'd be harsh in winter. That's all I'll say about it. Yeah. So in twenty twenty three, because we do a speed round dedicated to uh, Speed, the world's greatest police movie with Keanu Reeves in it. He's yep. everything. In twenty twenty three, you're asking Santa for what? Uh... You know what? I'd, I'd really like a new barbecue. There you go. That's all good. I hope you're listening, Mrs. Mac. Last book read, not your own. <laughs> um, I'm I'm just just in the last stages of finishing a biography of Winston Churchill, actually. Oh, there we go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is it the William Manchester one? No, more recent one. I can't remember his name, but it's it's um, good. Reasonably reasonably recent. All right. Uh, fave film of all time is who? Oh, look, that's a tough one. But I probably have to go Empire Strikes Back. Nice. Yep. Bad ending. Well, great ending for the bad guys. Uh, dinner for five. Who are the other five? You can't have family members either, but you can have anybody throughout history. Okay. Um, Sigmund Freud, Charles Darwin, uh, Winston Churchill, because I think he'd be really entertaining. Yep. Um, John Lennon and... Kurt Cobain, just to make it interesting. Certainly, yeah, there's some great conversations. <laughs> Lennon and Churchill in the same corner could be good fun. I reckon. Uh, fave phone app? Um, oh, that's an interesting one. Um, look, I'm going to be a real geek and say that it's my to-do app because it stops me losing my mind. Good, that's better than ChatGP. So that's <laughs> good work. Uh, now, given your birth town, yeah. were the Spanish women's football team a little bit hasty in your opinion? Oh, look, I, I, um, I, there's always a soft spot in my heart for Palmerston North, and I do so, still support the Turbos, except when they're playing Auckland. But, of course. Um, I can imagine coming from a big European city, Palmerston North would seem like a bit of a backwater. Yeah, okay. Uh, now, I know that you, like I, am a, a fellow metalhead, so the best mm. metal guitarist of all time is who? Um, I reckon Jimmy Page still. There you go. Yep. Yeah. All good. And... The greatest Auckland rugby player of all time is who? You know what? I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick at one that people probably don't pick, and he's actually a North Harbour player, but he's a Blues man, Tony Woodcock. There you go. Yep. And 
thanks to Tony Woodcock, ex-student of, let me think, Kuiper College. New Zealand had, had the Rugby World Cup. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, Only try scorer. That's it, exactly. Yeah. And a front row, God bless him. Um, for those that don't know uh, or confuse a psychologist with a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. what do psychotherapists actually do? Um, yeah, so look, it's not unusual to confuse that. Lots of people do. So uh, in New Zealand, um, psychiatrists and around the world, psychiatrists are medical doctors. So they do medical training first. Mm-hmm. And psychiatry is a speciality like any other speciality. So generally in New Zealand, they're in charge of uh, medication and assessment and diagnosis. And um, often can prescribe medications that GPs can't, just like any other specialist, right? Psychologists and psychotherapists can't prescribe, and we specialise in talk therapy. And generally speaking, if you're New Zealand trained, clinical psychs will focus more on uh, short-term acute symptom relief. Mm-hmm. And psychotherapists will focus more on trauma and development and often longer-term treatment. But things get pretty blurry after you've been practising for a few years. Right, and if I heard correctly, mm. apparently the sort of, I'm not going to say the challenge, but when you spoke to somebody about it, they actually said to you, hey, you normally don't do psychotherapy until you're sort of in your mid-30s later on, and you went, bugger that, I'm going to nail it, and managed to become a psychotherapist. True story? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. No, that's correct. I um, When I was living in the States, I, I did some volunteer work for a, for a men's violence program and got a little bit of experience and um, and was studying psychology. And yeah, AUT sort of, um, there was a t- couple of us in my year and, and uh, the intake was in 99 who were in their 20s, um, but it was a bit unusual at the time. Thankfully, it's less unusual now because I think, you know, wisdom, experience <laughs> yeah, yeah. and enthusiasm are all things that different people have to offer, eh? That's it, exactly yeah. right. Now, why now for shit happens and before we go any further congratulations on a great book because honestly if normally when it's got psych and whatever it is after it and a book I'm sort of like oh this is going to be a bit of a small fest uh, but Fair then enough. when I saw it when you started off and it was like actually this isn't a self-help book I'm like well thank the thank the Lord for that because uh, there's so many of those but it's actually lessons you've learned so why now because like you say it's more of a map than a self-help book uh, and it's a smorgasbord of helpful things you've learnt along the way. So I know that you wrote it during COVID, eh? Yeah. Yep. Um, but why sort of, what made you sort of go, actually, you know what, now's the time? Well, I mean, in all honesty, um, <laughs> I, I was sort of always on my list of things I'd like to do, but the good folks at Upstart Press actually approached me in, um, in the long lockdown of 2021 <laughs> yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and asked me if I'd be interested in, in writing a book. And I said, yeah, look, sounds like a great idea. Um, and pretty much gave me free license, really, which was which was really great. They had a lot of faith in, in, in me and what, and what I could produce. So, um, you know, over the course of 22 last year, yep. um, just sort of beavered away. And, and really, I think it's why now is, is probably as much to do with actually having 20 years' experience under my belt as anything. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot of the things I say in the book probably wouldn't be new to psychotherapists, but we all say things slightly differently. We all have our own ways of sort of explaining things to clients and people, and you know, this is this is my way. Yeah. Now, speaking of self-help books, mm. when you see the absolute multitude of them when you walk into a books bookstore, what does the psychotherapist and you feel about them? Well, I mean, in all honesty, I, I firstly, I actually think it's great. Yeah. Um, because I think what it what it demonstrates is that there's a real curiosity and desire for people to understand themselves better and to learn more about themselves and relationships. I do think you have to be judicious, and I think that what, like 
anything in the sort of the well-being craze, whether it be diets, food, or <laughs> psychology, really, um, people make some pretty out there claims about what yeah. you can achieve. So, it, uh, you know, don't fall for the silver bullet. No matter what you do, it's always going to be hard work. But the important thing is to make sure you're putting the energies in the right direction. And possibly don't listen to anything Gwyneth Paltrow says, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. Uh, right. Now, you say in the book that you hate the bu- buzzword resilience because mm. it's touted as a modern-day panacea, uh, like a cure-all. Um, in reality, is it the new sort of tap on the shoulder and harden up, bud, do you think? Yeah, look, it can be, and I think when it gets misused, like like any of the self-help ideas can be misused, really, um, and, and I think the, the problem with resilience is what it doesn't acknowledge when, when we sort of go to that place of, like, we just need to keep, teach our kids to be resilient, is we're not actually looking at, well, why might they be turning up at school with problems in the first place? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure in, in your line of work, you see this all the time, you see, you guys see the end product of a whole series of really lousy circumstances, yeah. right? So, yes, resilience can be helpful, but actually, unless we're helping people, uh, you know, get good nutrition, get stable housing, um, you know, and actually have a life worth living, then then we're probably, as you say, just telling them to harden up. Yeah. Now, lots of young people, kids, are way better at mental health issues, stuff, asking for help than, let's say, 60s, 70s, or 80s kids, right? Um, is it because... They are more in tune or softer than previous generations, you think? Because there are definitely a lot more, I'm going to say aware kids, because I actually think they are more aware, they're more in tune with their feelings, but Mm. do you think it's because they're softer? Do you think, I mean, you hear all sorts of crap terms going on about this woke generation, which is complete garbage, yeah, whatever. Um, But do you think it's because they are softer or do you think they're more in tune? How do you describe it? Well, you know, every generation's had its argument with its elders, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the funny thing about this argument is that actually we all made parenting decisions and education decisions to raise a generation of kids who were, as you say, more aware, more in tune, more aware of mental health difficulties. And now we're giving them a hard time for it. <laughs> it's kind <Yeah>. of ironic. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You know, because yeah. we, we want our kids to be in tune and having good relationships, and we want our boys to be able to cry. Yep. At the same time, is when they actually start to object to some of the things, whether it be work practices or, you know, how we structure society, then we start telling them off for it. Yep, exactly. And you've just said it all there. So in New Zealand, our depression rates, especially for rainbow community, are horrific. Our suicide rates for youth, and especially males, are just heartbreaking from beginning Mm. to end how does the average and I know that you've been involved in lots of mental health reforms you're involved um, with I Am Hope and Gumbuk Friday Um, how does the average New Zealander help stop it because it is it's an epidemic but how um, how do we how how does the average New Zealander help people it's a tough one. It is. Yeah, yeah. I wish there was a simple answer, but yeah. I think you know one of the things that we've really focused on um, on on the Nutters Club radio show, particularly since COVID, and, and I talk about this in the book too, is that we can't do anything without other people. Yeah. Um, so one of the unique challenges I think now post COVID is actually rebuilding those face to face communities and connections. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it be the the, the language course down at the local school or you know the PTA or you know the volunteer services that people go along to or, or just actually hanging out with mates face to face yeah 
um, you know, and in small towns, it's often places like the rugby club and, and the local pub, um, and, and that can be obviously a bit of a problem sometimes with alcohol. But those are the community centres. Yeah, eh? yeah, yeah. And, and so I think it, it for those of us who are doing well or feel like we are on top of things, I think it, the responsibility falls on us to actually not just make sure that all our mates are okay, but actually think, well, how can I help? You know, maybe there's if you've got a bit of time, maybe there's some volunteer work you can do or some organising of just getting people together to go for a walk. Yeah. It's simple stuff, but I think a lot of that stuff we've lost, and, you know, spending too much time glued to a screen doesn't help. Yeah, Only because it stops us doing the face-to-face stuff, that's, eh? Yeah, that's it. Exactly right. So, now, you've been involved in a, with a, a few others, like, in sparking some mental health reforms. If I made you, I'm going to call it a new portfolio, the Minister of Mental Health yep. for a day, what would you do? Well, I've always said that we need a nationally funded psychotherapy service, um, yep. and that might sound like I'm feathering my own nest, but actually, <laughs> yeah. but actually when you think about it, you know, the, the, it's the old premise of, you know, build it and they will come. And, and one of the things that has always frustrated me about not just governments, but the Ministry of Health is, is the way in which we have to complicate things. Mm-hmm. So even the primary mental health rollout, which in many ways has been really successful in terms of getting people in front of clinicians, it's complicated. It created new professional categories and new funding streams and new bureaucracy, administration. And I just sort of think, actually, why can't we just give everybody an allowance, a certain amount of money that they can use to, to access therapy and counselling of their choice every year? And if they need more, they can get a report and get access some more. And then if you do that, what will happen is all of a sudden you'll find that a lot more people want to train because yep. there will be more jobs. And so we can build a service that means anyone can access that talk therapy when they need it, where they need it. Yeah, because like you've said, you know, you've mentioned it on the Nutters Club. I, I listen regularly. Uh, you've mentioned it and shit happens. It's an old, I'm not going to say an old community cops trick, but if you talk to any community cops trick and say, hey, what's the best way to solve community problems? They all say, talk. Yeah. To one another. So, yeah. yeah, there's birds of a feather there. Uh, so when you went to write Shit Happens, mm. where do you start? Because that is a huge task. If I said to you, hey, Kyle, write me a book on lessons for dealing with life's up, ups and downs. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. So where did you start? Because, I mean, I, like you say, it's it's not a self-help book. It's mm-hmm. lessons that you've learnt along the way. But in 20 years, if somebody sat me down and said, hey, you've got to write a book on uh, your 20 years of policing experience and what... Okay, I'll, I'll start at the first notebook, I guess, and work my way through. But mm. for you, that, that, that's a raft of patients, a, ra- a raft of therapy, um, different pl- locations, places and faces. So where did you start? Well, in the book, I start with death. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because I think it's about starting to think about what are the things that connect all of us. Yeah. And, and all of us are going to die. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. All of us face that in yeah. one way or another and have to deal with that in one way or another. Um, And really, when I sat down to write the book, what I did was I sort of just went through the lifespan, really, and talked about, you know, what's the impact of our early childhood, attachment relationships, what's the impact of adolescence, what's it like being a teenager, what's it like parenting a teenager, what's love and relationships like, and what happens when things go wrong. Um, Because actually, you know, I think, you know, AA have this old saying for people who walk into a group for the first time, is look for the similarities, not the differences. Yeah. And I think it, one of the biggest problems at the moment is, you know, we're so focused on the differences, politics, you know, aside, yeah. we're so focused on how we're different that we've lost some of the commonalities. And actually, we all we all have moments where we're going to have to face difficult things in our lives and figure out how to manage them. Yeah, uh, and how do I put this nicely? Um, that's always been a strength of New Zealand is the ability to accept, understand and kind of move on. Do you think we are getting a little bit more... 
Americanized with the way that we sort of have our political leanings. I like me personally. Um, you know, we. I think we're getting to the stage of the first thing that comes out of somebody's mouth is, "Hey, I'll mention what political party I'm voting for." Or this is my uh, political leanings, mm. and there seems to be this thing of, like they sometimes do in some some states in America, where we can't agree to disagree and sort of still be friends. We, there, mm. There's this, okay, yeah, the Kyle's this and I'm that, and see you later, goodbye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate, isn't it? I mean, you know. When I think about that from the point of view of a psychotherapist, and again, I talk about this in the book, I think it's about what we call emotional dysregulation, mm-hmm. right? When, when we get distressed and upset, we tend to get more black and white now. Thinking, yeah. You're right, I'm wrong. Yeah. You know, that's how most arguments start, yeah. right? Most fights start that <laughs> yeah. way. Uh, because people get really distressed. And I think what, what you're describing tells us that at some level... Um, society's kind of distressed at the moment, mm-hmm. you know, and that we're not finding ways to actually regulate and calm ourselves down en masse. And that's kind of understandable when you look at not only just the amount of change that we're expected to undertake, but, you know, when we look at climate change and the, the increasing storms and frequency of big things that we're going to have to deal with, um, you know, prices and, you know, the cost of living and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think most people are more distressed than they were five years ago. Yep. And one of the outcomes of that is that we get polarised. Yeah. Now, speaking of shit happens, mm. when COVID strike, were you amazed at, one, and I know that you talk about this in the book, one, yeah. the anxiety levels, two, the toilet roll hoarding, <laughs> which I still find bizarre, Yeah. and three, you talk about anxiety leading to avoidance. Do you think it was just because of the geographical location, our government's measures, and the perceived fear that New Zealand had COVID anxiety a lot worse, or do you think we were better than most with the anxiety because when I went up to Canada earlier on this year it was mm. they're treating COVID like it was a cold I'm not going to say I was on tenderhooks but I was mm-hmm. certainly a little bit more weary than they were um, so yeah were you surprised at the anxiety and the sort of just that sort of oh we're all going to go down to the supermarket and buy like 40 toilet rolls it's like this yeah that's yeah anyway um, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And I'm yeah. sure everything I say now will piss somebody off. First, oh, yeah, well, welcome. <laughs> welcome to my world. It's all good, yeah. yeah. I think we did really, really well at the beginning. Yep. And then I think we, we lost our way a bit towards the end. Yep. So I think, um, actually, and, and I think the data, which I always try and go back to, mm-hmm. what the data tells us is that we kept more people alive, and that's what the government said right at the beginning was their goal. Yep. So on, on that measure, we have to say, well, tick, right? Yep. The problem with anxiety is that once it's instated, it's hard to unroll it. Exactly. Right? And so I think, you know, the cost of keeping people safe has been the anxiety. But conversely, if you didn't want people to be anxious, then more people would have died. Yeah. So you can't really no. have both ends of yep. that, right? And when we look at places like Canada or the US or other yep. countries, it's just true that more people did die. Um, I think the main thing, again, is it comes back to how do we actually build those communities and connections. And I, I do see it happening. I mean, I'm, I'm in, on the board of my local school, and, you know, schools, it was a rough time for schools mm-hmm. and parents and everybody, right, for those couple of years because we lost PTA volunteers. Yeah. We lost all those community events. And I see that coming back now, and what I see coming back is more of a sort of a connection and a pride in those communities, which I think, give it a couple of years and I reckon we'll be okay. That's all right. It's all good. Yeah. I'll take it on advice then, right? So... What do you think the long-term stamp effects of people's mental health because of COVID will be in New Zealand? I mean, there's still lots of, like when I'm talking to people in my mm. role, there's still lots of people who are very anxious about 
flus and obviously you still see people who are masked up at the supermarkets yeah that's fine that's their choice um, they may live with somebody who's immunocompromised but do you think what do you think the long-term effects will be well, I hope we don't see too many health effects. I mean, you know, there's still the reality of long COVID and multiple infections. For some people, that can be quite nasty. Yeah, yep. I mean, I was listening today to something on the radio. They said they didn't figure out, actually, how bad the long-term effects of polio were for about 10 years, which, yep. of course, included paralysis, right? Um, I actually think that we'll, not only will we be okay, but I think there'll be some positive changes. I mean, I think, you know, when I look back now, we should all stay home when we've got a bad cold. Pretty much. We shouldn't go to work and no. affect everybody. Yep. Hey, yep. Um, I'd like to think that would be a positive change, that actually rather than having that sort of Kiwi, oh, you know, tough it up, she'll be right, I'll box on. Yeah. Um, actually, we look after each other in that way. And as you say, if, if individuals want to or need to wear a mask at particular times, then great, go for it. I've got no problem with that. Uh, which brings us around to the good old mental health day. Yeah. I'm not feeling that flash, I'm going to take a mental health day or, you know, a mode of mental health day. Mm-hmm. What are your opinions? We all know that there are going to be people who, for want of a better word, they take the piss. They're not going to, you know, yeah, I'm course. out fishing on the boat and everything else. But there will be generally days where you think, actually, you know what? Today's just not the day I've got this on, I've got that on, mm. blah, blah, blah. Um, do you think mental health days are actually a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, actually, it's interesting, again, when you look at the data, um, organisations that have um, put in place uh, unlimited sick leave, yep. they don't see that abused. In yeah. fact, actually, what they tend to see is that it's about, excuse me, about no. the same or slightly less. So I think, again, most people can be trusted. Yep. And actually, what you tend to see is if people take a day off, they tend to be more productive when they are at work, I, I think. And also, it's, again, it's that thing of actually being able to connect and relate to people. If you're having conversations with your employees or your staff, and you know that they've got, I don't know, two kids under five and their partners, you know, run ragged at work, then actually maybe a day off here and there is actually a way to support them. Yeah, if they're coming in with the badge of honour on their yeah. shoulder, then hey, look, you know, uh, exactly right. Now, uh, how did you cope personally with the anxiety of COVID? And what did you do to keep sane during lockdown? There were lots of people doing mm. different things. So what did you do? I mean, there was people were doing the long walks and the family walks and everything else but what did you do knowing what you know mm-hmm. to keep you and your family sort of sane during lockdown yeah well <laughs> i mean i had the added complication of actually uh being in the middle of an election campaign yeah uh, yeah and I, working as well yeah. Working, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so um look i was kind of fortunate in a way that um as a psychotherapist, I was able to come to work. I wasn't able to see my clients face-to-face, but I came to the office, uh, and my partner's a pharmacist, and she works a couple of days a week, so she was also leaving the house. Yep. So we actually, during the week, we only had one of us generally at home at a time with the kids, so there was a bit of a bit of breathing space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the main things for me was actually, um, you know, actually cycling to and from work. Uh it's great being on a bike when there's no cars on the <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and trying to keep things as normal as possible, you know, with the kids when I was homeschooling them on the days I was home, actually just having a bit of structure and a bit of routine. And, you know, we didn't spend nine till three doing schoolwork, no. but we hung out for those times and we did stuff together. And um, actually the kids still kind of remember it fondly, actually. They still remember the walks and, you know, the cooked lunches. and you know, That's a good I, thing. I think that's nice. If they've got nice memories about it, then that's great. Yep. Uh, do any of the kids' schoolwork trip, trip you up? There were lots of people. It's like, how the hell do you do this new form of the vision? Um, and that type of stuff, it was like. So, right. Okay, now to be a psychotherapist, you have to undergo therapy yourself, don't you? Yeah, you right. so, yeah. So you have to be careful not to suffer, I'm guessing, what they call in um, like physio-type circles, over syndrome, like mm. other medical professionals. Um, 
how do you manage to cope with it? Because you're in an office, you've got people coming in all day, um, giving you maybe some childhood trauma, maybe they're talking about something that makes them anxious and everything else. So how do you unload your load, if you know what I mean, at the end of the day? Yeah, look, that's um, that's probably actually the core skill that you learn, really. And, and what tends to happen in this line of work is you sort of build your capacity over time. So generally speaking, beginning therapists can see less clients and more experienced ones uh, just because that, that capacity to not take it on gets, gets mm-hmm. greater over time, right? But I think one of the main things is also actually also just being in tune with yourself and what's going on in your own life. So if there are things going on, generally I, I sort of, tend to naturally just sort of scale things back a little mm-hmm. bit and have a bit of flexibility. Um, but the main thing with, with your own therapy is, um, you know, it's not just so that we make sure that all therapists aren't completely nuts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's yeah. actually about making sure that your own stuff doesn't get triggered, really, so yeah. that, that when I'm sitting with someone, the relationship is one of the tools, right? So being able to read what's going on between us and think about that together is kind of the work. And, and knowing what's mine is really important so that I can be clearer about what's theirs, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if I ask you, what's the ratio of you listening and you talking mm-hmm. in one of your sessions, roughly, what do you think it would be? Um... To some extent, that depends on how long someone's been in therapy for. At the beginning, I tend to talk more. Um, as time goes on, um, less. Oh, I don't know, I'd probably say somewhere between 20 and 40% me. Yep, there yeah. there's a lesson there for all of us, just quietly. Um, if somebody comes to see you as a mate or a friend and says, yeah. mate, I'm not that flash, or I'm a bit depressed, in your opinion, what's the best thing we can do to help? Um without question to to actually just help them talk about what's going on mm-hmm. right? uh, asking questions and and listening without judgment um and if you're going to give advice ask if they want advice yeah um and, and you know a really good trick for that is if someone does come to you in that situation you can actually just ask them up front mate you're looking for some some reassurance and a bit of an ear or, or do you want my advice yeah and and if they want you just to listen Shut up and listen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, now there are lots of books that are alpha males capable of sort of doing five thousand push-ups, <laughs> climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, positive motivational quotes. Yeah. Is it worth diving into these, or are you better off just to learn to actually be comfortable in your skin? I've read yeah dozens of these books. Yeah. And they're great. I love them. And for probably about thirty seconds until I put the book down, I'm like, wow. And then I'm like, hang on, stop for a second. That's you. Mm. That's not them and everything else um, is, are you better off just learning how to be comfortable in your own skin do you think or are you better off emulating somebody else and sort of saying well here's a path that's worked for them let's mm. see if I can try it look I think there's always something to be learnt from I mean I love biographies it's yeah. um, you know I, I tend to vacillate between reading either complete um, trash fiction like, like <laughs> yeah. Jack Reacher books yeah, and, bio- and biographies because yeah. I, I find other people's lives really fascinating but I think you're absolutely right Brian I think the thing is is when we're reading those books it's about recognising that that's what that person did that worked yeah. 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 Um, I think about uh, you know one of the greatest multi-code sportsmen this country's ever seen Sonny mm-hmm. Bill Williams yep uh, good blues man in the, <laughs> in the end yeah. <laughs> I was going to say hang on yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and you know he I've seen him interviewed a number of times and obviously he's a man of faith um, and he talks about that his way of honouring his God 
as being the best sportsman that he could be because those are his gifts, mm-hmm. right? Now, we can't all be Sonny Bill Williams. No. Um, but we can figure out what our gifts are and, and, and maximise those. And, I mean, obviously, you're quite a physical guy. You like pushing yourself physically. So yes. imagine that I'm that too stupid to quit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I should that be taking therapy for that just <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, yeah. For, yeah. for me, it's about, um, you know, about being able to help people. And I think my gift is listening to people. And, and other people, it'll be, you know, being able to build a house, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, being able to maximise and have pride in how we engage with the world, I think, is the key to happiness. Yeah, I tragically gave a book to somebody that was by sort of an action hero who actually climbed up a big mountain and mm. everything else one day, and he was in a bit of a black spot, and I gave it to him, he read it, and he's like, that's frigging awesome, bro, thanks very much, and I'm like, yeah, he said, but there's some days I had problems getting out of bed, so he said, the, the mountain is just mm. not even there, and I was like, yeah, lesson learned, no problems. So mindfulness is mentioned in your book, which is, I've got to be honest, it's one of my most hated mental health buzzwords, mm-hmm. uh, because plenty of people seem to go, I do this, so that's mindfulness, and look, mindfulness is whatever you want it to be, that's all good. I have had countless guests on here, and I've asked them all for their definition of mindfulness. I know that you mentioned it in the book, so without going to too huge details, if I said, what's the Kyle McDonald definition of mindfulness, it would be? I think it's attention training. Yeah. And the ability to be able to be present to the things that are right in front of us. And most people already do it in lots of ways. They just don't know that that's what they're doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so, for instance, you know, whatever your buzz is, if it's sports or music or uh, whatever it is, you're probably already in the flow and in the moment when you're doing that. And then it's just about being able to take that experience and deliberately use it elsewhere in your life. Yeah. Now, speaking of buzz, many mm. people use PT, PE, exercise as their panacea for mental health issues. Uh, we all know somebody who swears by it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've got to run 10Ks a day or something else like that. Mm. But the second they can't do the exercise, mm. it's like the paint begins to bubble a bit and then it cracks and then it begins to peel. And now I'm suffering anxiety because I haven't been to the gym twice this week and everything else. Is it really the silver bullet it's touted to be? Or is it just like you said before, you know, a matter of finding your buzz? Um, I think Farmstrong used that with. Um, Sam Whitelock, just find what works for you and make it work for you. Yeah. Um, but is there any way of not replacing an addiction with another addiction? Because look, let's be honest, as I look at it as a police officer, mm. I know that there will be people who look at people who've got alcohol addiction and then look at people who go to the gym and go, well, they're miles apart. And I'm like, well, they both have an addiction. Mm. It's just a different addiction. So what, what's your thoughts on that? There's... There's two answers. The first one is that anything we do to get our heart pumping and our blood moving is good for us. Yep. And actually there's a ton of research that says that um, being more active is more effective than for depression in particular and anxiety in different ways than just about anything else you can do. So that that's kind of indisputable, right? I think the thing is then people interpret that as being I have to run a marathon or yeah. go to the gym six times a week. Actually... Um, Anything that you can do that is more than what you're doing at the moment is a good idea. Yeah. And and actually, when and I, and I know this from experience um, myself, finding things that you can sustain is the most important thing. Mm. I mean, we you know, you can go and train for a triathlon, then sit on your ass for six months yeah. afterwards. <laughs> yeah. That, that's probably not that great either. No. Because yeah. actually, you're not sustaining it, right? So actually, in that instance, you'd probably argue that going for a decent walk every day is better than training for a triathlon. In terms of the mental health research, yeah, right? Yep. It's about consistency and keeping it going. 
The thing with injuries and stuff is, again, it's about, I talk about in the book, the need to be able to be flexible, yep. right? Um, if we get stuck on one way of coping, then actually that's always going to stop serving us at some point, whether it's, as you say, whether it's alcohol or um, or exercise. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a few drinks after a tough day either, no, as long there as it doesn't develop into an addiction. Yeah, exactly right. Which brings me on to my next question. So, you're at the rugby, you're having a few beers and everything mm-hmm. else. Some people would say that that has been part of the issue. We do have mental health problems for males mm-hmm. is because they've lost that and this is going to sound horribly sexist it's not meant to be but we've lost that sort of uh, you know the the guys having a couple of beers watching the rugby game having a bit of a time and then going back to home we've lost that sort of Friday office a Friday night office culture where everybody has a bit of a drink and then disappears do you think that's true or not I've had a number of old timers say to me oh you know we used to have a couple of quiet drinks on Friday night mm. everybody would discuss their problems and go from there, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they probably did, but there was probably also three or four in that room who were mm. masking everything and making it sort of uh, everything's perfect in this world. A little, what would you call it, like a, the Instagram syndrome, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, do you think that's part of the problem, or do you think that that's not nothing to do with it? To be fair, I think it's part of the problem, but I think what, you, what, like we've talked about already, I think the thing to look at is what's actually happening that isn't about the alcohol or the rugby, or the location. Mm-hmm. It's actually about getting together and connecting and, and having communities where we can talk with each other. Yep. And if that's over a couple of pints on a Friday and, and, and you know that's not a problem in terms of anyone's drinking, then that's great. That's a good thing to do. Yep. Um, but we have to keep being honest with ourselves about, um, you know, is are we drinking too much? You know, are we doing these, as men, are we doing that in a way that's actually okay by our family and our partners? Yep. Um, and also, and I think this is one of the ways in which sometimes we can trip ourselves up, also allowing our partners to do the same. Yep. You know? Yeah. Uh, and having their time and space to go and connect up with their mates. Um, but for me, it comes down to actually finding places to connect. And that can be the gym. It can be a walking group. Yep. It can be church. It can be all sorts of places. So I think the old timers are onto something, but... It's not about the beer. No, you're exactly right. So as a, as a psychotherapist and a police officer, both of us deal with people who have had relationships that have failed, come to a messy end. Mm. Now, as we both know, every incident or relationship is different. But in days of like too much work, white noise distractions and the such, like many times in my policing experience, it's because molehills have become absolute mountains mm. in a relationship. People aren't talking to one another, such like. Is it a matter of listening making time for one another or should you know or should you know in sort of the immortal words of Kenny Rogers know when to fold them and know when to hold them and know when to walk away yeah it's it's tricky isn't it I yeah. think that um, one of the things that it's really important to feel clear about is um, safety trumps everything mm-hmm. um, you know that's your line of work exactly right yep um, but put, putting that aside I think we have to feel like we've done everything we can before we walk away from a relationship, particularly if there's, you know, um, businesses and houses and kids involved. Um, and actually, often that involves counselling, but it doesn't have to. Um, but most things can be fixed if both people are willing. Yeah. Even, yeah. even you know, even affairs, um, even incidents of violence, if people, both people are willing to, to engage and change, particularly the one who's used violence, then that many relationships survive that, but both people have to be wanting to take responsibility for their stuff. Yeah. Uh, now, I've heard you mention this in other interviews, and you mention it in the book as well, but lots of times you'll have partners who will turn up at your clinic, mm. for instance, and say, oh, yeah, the only reason I'm here is because he said I have to be, or mm-hmm. she says I've got to be. 
how do you get over that bridge as a therapist trying to get somebody to talk to you sort of like well I'm only here because they've asked mm. me to be here yeah I mean it doesn't always work <laughs> no, no, no yeah, 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 um, yeah but you know often I think particularly for guys um, I think that can be a way of, of kind of saying I'm here uh, and I don't necessarily understand what's going on yeah actually yeah so you know I mean I'll often just ask okay well if they were here what would they tell me about what the problems are yeah and then, you know, once I think a bit of trust has been built, um, then, you know, people could start to open up about what their view of the problem is. Because, you know, again, safety and, and violence aside, um, it always takes two to create a problem. Yep. Yeah, you're not wrong. Um, and, and ultimately, therapy is treatment of the willing. So if people really don't want to be there, there's not very much you can do. No, no, which is pretty much like anything else, isn't it? Yeah. Can't lead a horse to water. Uh, so, one of your first paid jobs were in the mental health sort of therapy space was an anchorage, if I'm correct, mm. a group treatment program for men who were violent in intimate relationships. Most were court ordered there, and your role, uh, sort of, the course of the treatment was helping challenging men to take responsibility for their violent behaviour. Now, you s- talk about seeing boys and men in their uh, being acceptable in their vulnerability and welcome to express their emotions as anybody as the long term path out of the shameful record of intimate partner violence and I completely agree with you Mm. Um, but by the same token you know as we've spoken about before if we allow boys to express their emotions we allow men to become more sort of in touch with them themselves and be able to express their feelings there's going to be a number of people sort of say oh you know Mm. yeah Um, and you use a great line in there where somebody says to you oh I'm too sensitive and your answer always is according to who yeah, yeah, which exactly. I think is great. Um, but what do we do to get those men out of that sort of, I'm not going to say path, mm. but that sort of walk and actually get them somewhere to express their feelings, to be able to talk about themselves? Because as we know, like many people that you and I deal with, mm. um, they have real problems expressing their feelings. They've had childhood trauma. Yeah. And there's a raft of stuff going on in the background, as we both know. But... How do we actually get them to start talking about it? Chances are they're probably not going to talk to a police officer, mm. or they may do, depending on the relationship, but is it a matter of coming to see a therapist? Is it a change in society, or is it to all of the above? Well, yeah, it is kind of all of the above, but one of the things that I think is really important is we need to throw this this phrase toxic masculinity out the window and, yep. and never mention it again. Yes. Um, we need to value masculinity and, yep. and value in it its in its differences and accept it and understand it for what it is. It doesn't have to be in contrast to femininity. No. Uh, in the same way that we don't, women don't have to be defined by femininity either, yep. right? And so for me, it actually comes down to being able to say to people, actually, you're free to be who you are. Yeah. Um, now that sounds a bit wishy-washy, but. The, the constraints of masculinity, I think we're getting better and better at challenging, but we've ended up in this slightly wonky place where actually we sort of, you know, have these conversations about what's wrong with boys. And I think actually what's wrong with boys is probably everything around them. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, again, it comes back to that idea of blaming the individual rather than looking at, well, how do we actually raise kids to be good members of society and good partners? Um, I mean, and I think we're a long way along the journey, right? I mean, and I think even just listening to, um, you know... The, recent sort of interviews by, by John Kerwin who is, is obviously um, a, a giant in this area Correct, yep. uh, you know he still comes back to talking about vulnerability and people having feelings and I think you know holding up 
positive role models of people who can actually do this and have these conversations um, is just so, so vital. Um, and it doesn't have to be all blacks. Um, I mean, that's often where we go in this country, right? Yeah, but, yeah, but you're um, right. You know, I mean, you get people who are like, oh, well, you know, you're toughen up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I'm like, well, my argument is I'm a big Tyson Fury fan now. Obviously, he's yep. had huge mental health problems. Mm. Uh, my attitude is always, well, are you tougher than Tyson Fury? I, I seriously doubt it. Yeah. Uh, but yet, he seems to be a lot better in touch with his emotions than he has been in previous years. Mm. And like he often says, you know, this is an everyday battle for me. And I think for some people, that's just what they don't realise. For some of our boys and for some of our men, it is an everyday battle. Mm. It's not just a matter of, you know, I'm good this week and good to go. So, yeah. And the conversation, I think, needs to be more and more about actually acknowledging the trauma, yep. right? So when we talk about, uh, for instance, the youth crime at the moment is a biggie, right, politically, and people talk about Ram Raiders mm-hmm. as, a, as a label, I think, no, 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 no. These are traumatised kids. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're doing bad stuff and there needs to be consequences, mm-hmm. but actually we need to be talking more about, well, how do kids end up in this place? Mm-hmm. You know, most of them end up in this place, and you know this from mm-hmm. experience, right? Because their homes are not somewhere that they actually feel safe in. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, why is somebody stealing food from a supermarket? Because they're hungry. Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly right. So so the Nutters Club, uh, News Talk ZB, is something that you are well known for. Now, how do I put this nicely? If I didn't know you mm. and I came and saw you at your office and said Kyle I got this great idea for a mental health sort of talk show and it's fantastic I love the, I, the thing that I love the most about your show mm-hmm. is the callers who ring in yeah, and who great, are isn't it? honest about their battles mm. and everything else you can actually I can actually see a number of your, you and some of your guests and co-hosts not swelling up but just taking a moment to reflect on it and go sheesh that's a tough battle but if I came and saw you now and said got a great idea for a mental health show and I'm going to call it the Nutters Club <laughs> what would you say because I mean what was it when you when you went and approached the, the yeah. network and said hey I've got this idea what was the reaction like well I, I wasn't directly involved in yeah. the beginning the show's been going since uh, about 2009 early 2009 and of course the, the founder of, of, of the club was Mike King yeah yep. and, and a comedian he was yep. still actively doing comedy at that time um, and, and and I, st- I still stand by the name because I think one of the things that, that the show embraces is, firstly, the the regular callers, as you say, the, the people who would consider themselves members of the club, mm. um, feel that it's a way to, to take ownership of the term again yep. and actually use it in a way that is... Um, gentle and compassionate and describe something that they experience about themselves but it's also about humour yeah yeah. Um, and the power of humour and, and if you know people are on the Notice Club Facebook page um, they will know that actually that's primarily about funny memes yeah as well as slipping some serious stuff in yep. there as well because there's nothing more powerful than, than having a laugh and whether it's mental health or, or the police break room you know Actually, being able to laugh sometimes, despite how desperately awful things is, is the best medicine. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, and when you look at people like Mike King, um, Billy Connolly, Robin mm. Williams, all those types of people, a number of the things that they're talking about is actually people's mental health and how they react to situations yeah. and the such like. So you're exactly right. And it's about laughing with, not laughing at. You know, yep. and, and and making sure that for me, good comedy um, is always about 
either pointing out things that are silly and that we can all sort of connect with and feel human about or punching up at the ridiculousness yep. of power or, or politics or whatever. Yeah. Uh, we don't punch down. No, Hannah Gadsby yeah. uh, does a great skit on, because, uh, you know, she has autism amongst mm. other other diagnoses, uh, but her one where she's talking to a partner and saying, does, and the plain guess who, does your, is your person showing teeth? And her partner's like, oh, that's an autism thing. Oh, hang on. Do you mean she's smiling? It's like, yes, and that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, you're, you're right. Exactly right. So yeah. in meditation, uh, often p- people will practice, uh, but like you say, it, sometimes it's the silence, mm. um, and, and they tout boredom as their reason for sort of stopping things. Now, you say in the book, um, has boredom become a lost art? Right? And we all know that boredom has been responsible for an awful lot of creativity. If you take away the fact that McCartney and Lennis are sitting in McCartney's home bored with a guitar mm. what can we do we'll write a few songs then you lose the Beatles and that type of stuff right um, so with do you think we're losing the ability to be bored and be creative because we've got phones we've got social media there's AI rampant now do you worry about people and their inability to be still silent and bored because being bored actually isn't a bad thing is it no, it's not. Um, I do worry about that because I think it's, you know, everyone will tout a million reasons why social media and phones are a bad thing. Um, but I think what you're describing is really the core problem. And again, it comes back to that flexibility thing, right? If the only thing we know how to do when we're upset is jump on Instagram and scroll, then that's actually a bad thing just just because it's the only thing we yeah, know how to yep, do, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, mindfulness doesn't have to be the answer. Sometimes it can be as simple as actually just sitting in your car for five minutes when you get home or before you leave the office and just collecting your thoughts. Um, It also can be as simple as actually just taking five, ten minutes to talk to your partner, put your phones down, turn the TV off, um, you know, wait till the kids are in bed and actually just ask, how are you? Yeah. Now, really really bad segue. What's it like going into a bookstore and seeing your book everywhere? Do you sneak a peek to sort of see how it's been selling or do you stand behind people and sort of go, oh, this is a good book? Um, what's that been like? Yeah, it's quite humbling actually, to be honest. Um, Hamish, my co-host on the Nutters Club, has said he he tends to, um, a couple of times he's just picked it up and loudly said, oh, this book looks great. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't quite have the gumption to do that. Yeah, but let no, me front it for you. Yeah. I, do, I have to admit, I do really like it. And it's, it's something different about it being a real physical thing as opposed to just a blog or a, um, you know, a newspaper column. There's, there's something permanent about a book. Have you done the random thing of going into the bookstore and signing some copies and just putting them back on the shelf. No, I haven't. I haven't had the gumption to there do you that go. yet. I sort of, I, 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 I probably should. Yeah. All right. Now you mentioned a number of times and shit happens about finding your tribe, mm. which I get. Right. But should we also be really comfortable in being able to practice the lost art of agreeing to disagree and still be mates? Right. Um. Except for, and I'm not going to give the the reason why. Except for Nazis, who you still say that we can still punch, so that's fine. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I do think it is a lost art. But I actually think that mo- you know, I think it, it, I also wonder sometimes whether we're just being told that it's a lost art, because you know, um, with all due respect to the news organisations that I do work for, uh, fear and anger are the best ways to get someone to click mm-hmm. on something, right? Mm-hmm. So the the news industry as it is now needs to sell advertising, and the the best way to get people to click is make them frightened or make them angry. Yeah, which is like my uncle came out from England years ago, and we mm. went and saw the Blues, uh, well Auckland play Manu Samoa at the time and he yeah. said where are we going to go and sit and I said we're going to sit with uh, the Manu Samoa crowd mm. he's like 
are you wearing a blue shirt? And I'm like, no, be all right. We're yeah. all good, no worries. So we're going to get killed. And he sat there <laughs> for the entire game wondering if he was going to be knife bottled, whatever. Yeah. Uh, came out, he had a great laugh with him and everything else. Do you think it's just that thing of what you say, that fear of, you know, we are actually, we have to be in this tribe. And mm. like I said, like you say in the book, find your own tribe, but again, be who you want to be and don't be judged because you are that. And maybe you might find that you actually belong to about... 15 or 20 different tribes and that's all basically part of them. I, I, I think it's important to listen to the experts in this one. So, you know, when we take the extremes when we the, and the disinformation project here in New Zealand, there's some academics doing some wonderful work in how do we actually tackle disinformation and misinformation and the real sharp end of this stuff, right? Yep. The political protests and all that kind of madness. Is actually, you know, for the you know for the annoying uncle that you've got in the family yeah. the, the <laughs> yeah. best thing that you can still do even though it feels really hard is ask them why they think that yeah. and actually listen. Yeah. Because not only does it help people to be able to talk about anything that they're distressed about, you might actually find some points of connection and agreement. Yeah. And actually asking people to explain or how they how they reach that conclusion, sometimes they might actually start questioning themselves as they talk out loud too. Not wrong. Now, final question, and it's the question we always ask. Mm. Uh the day of reckoning's come for Kyle McDonald. It's the eulogy question. You are lying there in your casket, but strangely you can hear what everybody else is saying at the mm. service. What would you like them to say about Kyle McDonald? Uh, that I was a good dad and that I made a difference. Can't get any better than that. So if you're following, if you want to follow, follow Kyle uh, on Instagram, it's Kyle K Y L E M A C D. It's the same for X or Twitter. Um, and go and follow, follow Kyle. On Twitter, uh, I love watching your Twitter account because we may not agree, but uh, I'm just like, yeah, well, that's a valid point. That's all good. Yep. Uh, even when he talks blues rugby. And <laughs> can I just say you were very lucky to beat my beloved Moana Pacifica this year. That's all I'll say about it. Uh, the Nutters Club on Newstalk ZB, they have also on Facebook. You can go and visit www.psychotherapy.nz. And even Kyle on Threads as well. Exactly the same. K-Y-L-E-M-A-C-D on threads make sure that you go out and get a copy of shit happens um i am not going to ruin the ending for you but let me say it just involves a piece of paper and a pen and answering lots of questions uh it took me a wee while to get it but yeah it's great and like you say as a psychotherapist you couldn't help but put in a graft or a diagram couldn't help could it. Couldn't so, help kyle thank you very much for your time and also thank you for sharing the lessons with us as well about mm. what you've learned because i think that's very often you talk to different cultures and they will all say Everybody has a story, and you, we've been lucky enough to share yours with you, and you've shared some lessons with us, and they are invaluable, and I think it, uh, it's a book that every New Zealander should have a look at. Um, again, you know, you may not agree with it all, uh, but like you say, if you take one or two nuggets out there, it's great. And for me, one of the really, really big nuggets there was, and it's going to become my catchphrase now, is when people say, oh, you're too sensitive, is that according to who? Mm, good one. Love it. Cheers, Brian. Done. Thanks for listening. But please do Constable Brian and I a favour and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next Cappuccino podcast. Real people, real stories.